Hello and welcome to Irreverent Testimony, brought to you by Netroots Radio, the political podcast by Inform Millennial and Gen Xer types. From a left-wing perspective, it is Saturday, May 2nd, 2020. We're about two months into quarantine hell, however you want to describe it. Uh, I'm Travis. I'm Rachel. And Rachel has a very special guest with us today. She is going to introduce for us. I do. Uh, our very special guest today is Lori Lynx-Murphy. Hi, Lori. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, Lori is a Denver uh, artist, uh, activist, beekeeper, writer um, that I am super excited to have on the podcast. And fangirling out a little bit because I just respect her so much and I am just so excited to talk about um, all the things that are going on in the world. So hi, Lori, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry it took me so long to do this. <laughs> no, you know. I'm just I'm just delighted that you're here. I'm excited too. Okay, so first things first, you wrote a Medium article that I read this morning um, about the quarantine, and I kind of wanted to jump into that first. Um, Good place to start. Yeah, right, because that's what we're all kind of dealing with right now. So uh, we'll put a link to the article in the show notes, um, but it really, I mean, the, the title of it, right, is like, how do you reopen something that never closed, right? Yeah. And so can you give me like a little synopsis and our listeners? Well- you know, essentially, like the as we've all seen, you know, the the class divisions have been exacerbated in this time in some really unique ways. And one of the things we're seeing is this idea that the economy is closed while we're sort of applauding essential workers. And it's this real cognitive dissonance that we have about like what it means to close an economy. So, you know, essentially, um, we're in a phase of disaster capitalism right now. Um, and um, if anybody's read, you know, any Naomi Klein about the shock doctrine, they're familiar with that term. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, basically there's there's businesses making record profits. I mean, let's face it, you know, Amazon and Instacart are making record profits while their workers who are literally risking their lives to mm-hmm. make people be able to stay at home. Uh, are fighting for a $2 hour hazard pay and are fighting for just basic masks and things that will make them safe. And, you know, I feel somewhat guilty in a weird way that I get to stay at home. And also I feel stuck between classes because mm-hmm. on the one hand, I'm watching all my other friends who are staying at home who have sort of, you know, middle management or like white collar jobs who are still getting paid and they're like complaining about being bored and making bread and, and showing their silly challenges. And, and I'm happy for them. I'm happy that they're getting to have that time because I think that, you know, like in our, in our society, nobody gets a break. Right. But like at the same time, the lower classes are not getting a break. And that includes people like me who are adjunct college professors, because I feel like, you know, I'm getting paid the same as I was before. There's been no extra pay, but I'm working so much harder. You know, I had to like pivot and, and create an entire class online, which added 40 hours to my, to my flat rate of pay that I'm paid every term. You know, I'm paid the same amount every term, regardless of what the class requires. And so this extra 40 hours And then this extra availability, I mean, last Saturday night, I had a student texting me at midnight, you know, um, it's really uh, interesting how invisible that is and how, yes, it's a great privilege to get to work from home because I'm immune compromised and I'm not risking my life. But at the same time, my brother, uh, who is far more immune compromised, who's on the kidney wait list, 
Mm. is finally staying home because he finally got his unemployment improved, but he's a gig economy worker. And so he had to wait. And, and he's out there, you know, going to dialysis three days a week and working, delivering kidneys, the other two, and he's on the kidney wait list. So it's just absurd. It's an absurd thing, you know? That's insane. I I actually work for DeVita. Um, Oh, wow. yeah, Yeah. I work for the lawyers, but, um, it's really interesting from that perspective too. Like, you know, we can't just stop providing dialysis to people, no. right? So like our field people have to go to work and, and provide dialysis and um, looking at... Among a very uh, at-risk population. Incredibly yes. at-risk. And we have like all kinds of things in place to sort of try to manage that. Um, but then I come from the non-field perspective, right? And I, I work for the lawyers, so I'm able to work from home. And I feel incredibly guilty a lot of the time right i do i do too yeah. and and it's and it's for me it's such a quirk because i i'm somebody who got my master's degree very late in life started teaching college late in life but before that you know i've taught for years and after school capacities and teaching artist capacities in all kinds of ways you know and um you know number one in the past just you know less than 10 years ago i would have been one of the retail workers out there in the front lines yeah um, Me too. And, you know, I already have an immune system that's attacking my thyroid. So, you know, it's like mm-hmm. not a good scenario. But um, so I feel guilty because my friends and my family are all still out there. And I'm also constantly agitated by the privilege I'm seeing in what people say because there's this universality about we're all staying home, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, right. like, you know, late night talk show hosts, people on Twitter and Facebook, everybody's like, oh, we're all in this together, but we're not all in this right. together. And right. it's a disrespect to pretend that we are and to call people essential workers while still ordering from Instacart, knowing that they're making less than minimum wage. You know, I mean, this is where it's just been really an interesting time to examine these things. And I feel fortunate and at the same time, very, very guilty. You yeah, know? me too. And I, you know, it's definitely like impacted my mental health. And I, oh, yeah. I feel like also like an asshole about that. Like, well, I wanted to jump in if I could and just please, talk yeah. about what it's like for artists during this time. Oh, please. Can we please? Can we please? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned it. The singer in my band is a music teacher. So she's been fortunate enough to keep working virtually with her students. But that is literally twice the work in getting the technology set up, preparing online lesson plans. You know, she's super stressed out. Not to mention that you're now an out. unqualified counselor with no training and no oh, support. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she's kind of always taken on that role, but yes, exactly. I always have too, but I haven't always dealt with 19 year olds supporting their whole family with a babysitting job or a student with two ER docs, you know, his parents, you know, right. Exactly. So, but you know, for performing artists and I'm in that community, I know a lot of them, some of them have just most, a lot of them have just stopped saying if we can't get together and practice or if we can't play, we can't do anything. I fortunately have a, a like a home studio set up and I can write music and mix music that's already been recorded and and I've been keeping super busy during this time and my band is planning to you know release music in the in the age of, awesome. of Spotify and digital music that's a little easier but you know I think for a lot of artists especially those we're talking about like anyone who's you know, gigged on doing installations on Santa Fe has got nothing mm-hmm. to do, but it'll work on stuff that hopefully they eventually 
but there's no way to fund that. They're not, you know, there's nothing coming in from that. Bands who rely on gigs, you know, it, it's really come to a standstill for artists, and it's really been hard to stay motivated and stay positive. So, being an artist yourself, that's I'm interested to hear your angle on oh, how, God. how to sort of keep your sanity during this time. Literally, have so much to say about this, and we cannot we cannot get through this without talking about what was done to us by this unemployment rule and how it works. Um, but I want to start with the positive here because one thing I've seen, um, is I am amazed and gratified about my beautiful community and watching everybody step up and make masks and help each other. And, uh, one of the things I've seen that I really want to plug that I think is amazing is, um, the live feed, we are Denver, which is just open to anybody to submit to, and it's curated, but, um, it's honestly like a bunch of real serious players in the Denver art and theater and music community coming together and creating a platform that is like allowing people, number one, to get Venmo and cash app and, and tips, you know, for their mm-hmm. work. And number two, like giving them some motivation and giving them something that the entire world can see. And I am just blown away by that beauty and also have been incredibly amazed and fortunate that like, um, people have out of the blue, just Venmoed me money just to support what I do and total strangers. One guy wanted to share his stimulus check with an artist and he didn't know in any artists. And so, uh, out of the blue, I got $200 because cool. I had a friend who knew him and, and it just that level of beauty and amazingness and also seeing people who gave up on being an artist, people who wanted it, but couldn't do it because of class or because of life getting in the way re-embrace that and re-explore that seeing people you know be creative like in their normal everyday life that's the beautiful part and that is what i hope we can take away from this and grow and keep positive with so i wanted to start with that because there's a lot of sad negativity out there that we are like dealing with and it's all normal and natural but like we have to notice the beautiful stuff too because i've just been so impressed with my community and so so gratified and then at the same time feel like oh my god i'm so busy i can't even take part in what you're doing like i want to make masks i want to be a part of this but like i've been just scrambling you know um so to the reality part i mean for me personally you know art represents uh a third to half of my income every year and of course like most artists i have to keep a day job which for me is being an art professor Mm -hmm. and um I uh, am an adjunct art professor, like 70% of the professors in this country. Sure. I think most people don't even realize oh, yeah. that with how high how high the costs of higher education are, that none of that money comes to us. We yeah. are, you know, we are um, always eight to 16 weeks away from unemployment and right. are have no health care. Most of us have no, uh, you know, access to resources so like you know during this week when i mean my school didn't miss a beat we've been online um for many years we're i guess apparently industry leaders in that something i didn't realize and and so we've had hybridized classes for a long time so we had a platform and we had a shell to put everything in and so when i had to move my class on online i teach in the wood shop okay (laughs) so how do you do that online don't know yeah so it was very very interesting quite a challenge and so i teach all these young artists who 
I had no tools and had no materials. And so we did projects with trash and uh, (laughs) their ingenuity. It was beautiful. Like their ingenuity was incredible. They blew me away. I felt like I failed them in so many ways. And they were so sweet and generous with me. And I kept telling them, look, we're all learning. I've only taught online once before and it wasn't even my content. So like, please just tell me what works and what doesn't like bear with me. And one student did this amazing thing where he carved a block of ice and he's a photography student. I'm always telling them like, please, you know, try, this is a foundations class. Please try to find ways to work it in your field. And he took this block of ice that he carved, this beautiful, like organic sort of, you know, like uh, abstracted sculpture, you know, a la Barbara Hepworth, if anybody knows who that is, but like very beautiful put it on a table with water on it and lit it from above with a flashlight and just like it it could have been in a gallery it was just absolutely incredible and so this is where it's like artists this is this is made for artists this time in a weird way because what we do is is reflect the world around us and rise to adversity and so that is the kind of thing that gives me some hope that like we will survive this but a lot of us are going to come out the other end and not be artists anymore not be able to do what we do for a profession anymore and that's the sad part and so you know that week that I was getting my class online everybody around me was applying for all these artist grants that popped up from the community which were amazing and of course I didn't have time to do any of that and they were all gone by the time I got there but let's talk about too um what is what has been done to us by our government in terms of this supposed money that we can get for being Mm self-employed um I think most people aren't aware of how it works. And I'm really thankful to Andy Kenny of uh, Colorado Public Radio because talking to him is the only thing that made me understand what was going on. And he really helped me be able to help other people and help myself. And um, it's it's awful, really, what's being done. You know, um, I, you know, like you said, anybody who is in this, it's like our work has stopped. You know, some of us are thriving at home working. Some of us are scrambling. You know, what I learned this is this is the fun of being a Gen Xer is that you know I this is now the third time I've lost everything <laughs> like yeah you know I, like nine eleven nine eleven I was on the verge of I had a couple of New York galleries interested in me and I just had this really big show in Santa Fe and my career was just about to level up and then it just was cut off at the knees and everything stopped my entire income stopped and it took me ten years to rebuild from that and then. 2008, before that 10 years was even up, just whacked me off at the knees again. I had a huge, huge commission in the works, a very big, large corporation that I won't name that doesn't exist anymore. But um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, that was all canceled. You know, that was that was going to be like an $80,000 job. That would have been the biggest thing I ever did in my entire career financially. Um, And uh, then now this, and I'm fortunate in that I had a good show last year, was just about to sort of level up again, I think, and and sold out half my show, which is uh, an amazing thing. And And you were at the Denver Art Museum, right? Yeah, I got to do a really cool Mm -hmm. thing at the Denver Art Museum. Um, Oh, God, though, but like... That's another story is like I found out everything was closing when I was on my way to an interview at the Denver Art Museum. I was crossing the street and they mm. called me and they're like, where are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm here. I'm, I'm just right outside, you know, like right before my interview time. And they're like, we're closing right now. Mm. Go home, you know, mm. and, and that's a huge opportunity that's on hold that I'm just like, you know, very anxious about. But yeah, I mean, if I hadn't had a good show last year. I would not be uh, in the position to have survived this thus far. I would not have been able to pay my rent. 
Um, you know, I don't earn enough from my job to be able to, uh, you know, basically my art career supports my job. That's what it is. <laughs> That's how it works, you know, but, yeah. um, essentially what they've done is they've said, okay, if you have a W2, you will get $2,500 of your, you know, if you've earned $2,500 on your W2, <laughs> let's say you've earned 2,500 on your W2 and you've earned a hundred thousand on your 1099 you're only going to get to use your w2 your 1099 money your self-employed money oh, wow. employment money is canceled out by your w2 wow is so that, i didn't know that wow that's how it's working so what's happening with me is because i had one class and ordinarily would have two and had two for the last year if they had gone with 2018 taxes i would have been screwed but Thanks to the Art Institute closing, my school had a huge boost in enrollment. That's a crazy story in and of itself. Um, the Art Institute was yeah. bought by a uh, religious cult, from what I understand, yeah. and lost their accreditation. So, yeah. I, I because read I read about yeah. that, that's an insane story that we can oh, do so, some other time. So but sad yes, and bitter yeah. for those students. But yeah. but Remcad took them in, and so as a result, we had this increased enrollment, and they relaxed the standards on how many classes adjuncts could teach, and so we. So I've, I got used to having two classes at a time, and now I have one. So I'm able to file for unemployment based on that. I'm not able to replace my lost income from the 1099, so I am just hustling. I am just hustling my ass off. Well, and um, this is a thing I wanted to talk about, too, in terms of other kinds of artists, particularly tattoo artists and hairstylists oh, yeah. and this oh, God. whole thing, right? This breaks my so heart. So what yeah. the fuck is Polis doing? Polis what on has earth? lost his goddamn mind. I mean, he was doing so good, right? Yeah. I was super proud. I was like, okay, thank God we have him. I no, I was bragging. Was about it him. my me too? <laughs> and now I'm like, what are we doing? You think, all, doing? you think it's those idiots at the Capitol that actually made him feel pressure? Those astroturf. No, in, in, in part, in part. But what's really happening, I think, is Let's that we have to remember. First, like what happened is he said. Yes. These non-essential businesses can start opening with all of these crazy regulations, right, about social distancing and cleaning and all of this stuff. That they can't meet. They can't right. afford to meet. And, They've and, been out of work. And these non-essential businesses are exactly the people that you think, like hairstylists, They're exactly do not the need to go back to work. They're exactly yelling about on, yes. at the Capitol. Right. Tattoo That's artists. That's so insane. Like massage you know? therapists. Most of these people are self-employed. Most of them are... But essentially what happened is he said they are allowed to reopen, which means that they no longer qualify for unemployment benefits. Right, right. And in a very, like, unscientific... That they haven't even gotten yet because they only released right. the standards for people who are self-employed or gig economy workers a week or two ago, Yep, I want to say. Yep. So, like, so all it's they really haven't about even gotten a payment yet. For me, is that they don't want these people in unemployment anymore. They don't want to. They don't want to pay these people, so they're going to allow them, quote quote, to work. But you're not wrong. Right? You're not wrong. However, there's a why, and the why is unfortunately in Colorado we are restricted by the Tabor Amendment. I know. We literally cannot go into debt. Mm. So there's a. I know. I don't know enough about this to explain it. But when legislatures back in session, which I think is in May, um. Apparently, there's a loophole in the Tabor Amendment for emergencies and that they oh. can uh, do a tax without a vote somehow if they can all agree 
that there that this is an emergency and I don't necessarily expect the Republicans to agree. But if they don't, I feel like it's probably political suicide. Yeah. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. But I, I think that part of why Polis is doing this is because, you know, we're not getting supported by the federal government as we should be. Mm-hmm. And and to be clear, this is a choice. This is a choice that both Democrats and Republicans have made to do things differently than other countries have and not support our people. That's to right. ask them to, to make more sacrifice than they can. And um, in this case, you know, Polis, like, first of all, look, like the only thing that fucking matters is science. You know, the coronavirus doesn't care about your goddamn feelings and it doesn't nope. care about your money. Nope. You know, so let's just be realistic there. But secondly, you know, Polis acts like he can't do anything about the rent issue. And the rent issue is probably the biggest issue in addition to this whole thing, you know. So, like, if if he's not going to do anything about the rent issue and these people who are hairdressers and tattoo artists have to pay rent – you know, well, okay, let's get them back to work because there's, you know, because because Becky down at the Capitol in her $50,000 truck is holding up a sign that says she wants a haircut and she has terrible roots. I mean, this is what's so fucking ridiculous. Is <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, like I'm not asking anybody to die for my vanity. I've had a spasm in my back for a week and I would love to go see my massage therapist. And because she is also my friend, I would never put her at risk that way. Exactly. And I would never ask that of her. And, right. and you know, and it's just to me like, my God, the privilege that is on display in caring about your roots more than another human being's life. Like people, these people see others as servants. And you notice if you look at the this, the protests, if you look at the people in the pictures, you know, number one, you know, it's not a real protest because there are people there with guns. Mm-hmm. And no one on the left could bring a gun to a protest right. like that. You know, the amount of police presence. Certainly not a person of near. color. Right. Oh, exactly. Well, you don't have to worry about that because it's all white people in these well, and there were for no, the most part from right. what I can see. It's all white people with guns and no arrests. Yeah. Imagine no arrests. that this was happening for something else with people of color and the same exact situation and we would have... Exactly. Mm. How do you even get a gun into a state house when I can't get a freaking lighter in there? You right. know? Like seriously, this is no this is this really really bends the truth in some interesting ways, and people are seem to just be accepting that narrative that these people went into the state house with guns, and oh, it was a protest, so they got in with guns. Well, they had somebody helping them on the inside to do that. That this didn't. Yeah, that's not how our world works. But yep. But you know, like, well, you know, God forbid, you know, you you allow people to sleep outside in a protest. You got to create a law that harms homeless people if they do that. But then they can go into the state house. There's no logic in that. People no. do not. But people never hear about the former, right? Like it's only reported in left wing media, and then it didn't happen um, for the majority of people. So this thing about the restrictions, I want to get back to. I'm I'm sorry. I, I have a very looping way of talking no you're fine you're great don't worry. I, I, I edit in writing online you know so, no so. yeah no but yeah like so my friends so, that are hairstylists and tattoo artists who are self-employed um are having to make really hard choices right now about i know whether or not they open and even if they did what would they do to protect themselves what would they do to protect their clients who are all uh, they're all friends right like no, I know. My hairstylist is like so many a good people. friend of mine. And so are yes. all of my tattoos. Like, I would never go. But then also, like, how do they live? And to your point that this is a choice, like, this weird thing that we're doing where it's like, well, either we let these people go back to work and put themselves at harm's right in harm, or 
they starve. And it's like, no, 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 there's a third choice. We just pay them to stay at home. We just there are so pay many them. choices. That's it. There are so we many just choices. Give them made. money, and then they can live, and then we don't put anyone at risk. And your fucking roots can be long, and I don't give a shit. But like, it's not a binary choice. It's not either they go back no. to work and can live, or they starve. It's a third choice is available, which is we just give them money. I mean. Really, you know, even the talk about means testing in this where people are like, well, some people don't need the money, so you can't give the money. And it's like, oh you God. know, you can take that back in taxes, right? You know that like you can give people money. And then at the end of the year, when the taxes come, let everybody know, hey, if you made over this amount, you're going to give that back in taxes. You don't need to means test this shit. Like, it's just, right. you know, the fact is, I mean, the fact is, and it drove me crazy in the last election when Jill Stein was calling quantitative easing a magic, magic trick, because it's not. It's actually don't get me started our on her economy. Yeah, don't, I don't. I don't even want to go there. But like, but like, honestly, you know that big infusion that they gave to the the Wall Street people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's quantitative easing. We we've disconnected ourselves from the gold standard years ago. And we're just making money up. So why should it matter if you pay people to stay at home with their own tax dollars? By the way, right. that is our money. That is right. not their money. Right. It's our money. Yeah. And then they send out this ridiculous twelve hundred dollars stimulus check, and Mnuchin's like, oh. Well, that should last people for 10 weeks. Do you understand <laughs> have you ever, what it is to live in this world? Like, you, like, Have you ever heard of what $1,200 does? Well, in that, that's what bothers me. That would me pay our rent plus $100. About so, so much of this is it's so brazenly, openly. Now, every politician is cynical and, and does things for political reasons. But like now, in the midst of a crisis, everything they do and say is so cynical and I mean, can you at least be smartly cynical? Well, is that yeah, Nancy that's that's Pelosi my point too. Ice cream really helping anybody? Yeah, <laughs> I mean that was poor timing. I think that's kind of irrelevant to most things. Nancy is, Pelosi's ice cream, but it's like they're simple. I, I mean, expressing itself in such weird ways. I mean, you know? just in general, everything this administration and Congress. Uh, for, although I would say, at the very least, some Democrats have some good ideas and want to help. But some of them really don't or don't get the full scope of it or they're just so cowed by the other side that they, you know, they give into these corporate giveaways and all this other crap. And then they pat themselves on the back and say, here, we threw some crumbs, you know, go get them. Pigeons. God, yeah, and that'll, that'll hold you over for a while. And, and like I said, it's so and we don't even have to get into Trump congratulating himself every day and what a great job he's doing. But like across yeah. government right now. It is it is such a game of, you know, look how how good we've done. Look how much we're helping you. Um, and the bar is so low because the Republicans have pushed it low, and the the Democrats are fine with it. There, I mean, I don't even I don't even know if I want to go to this place because it's so crazy. I do want to loop back and say something about the hairdressers and tattoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, just everybody that's being fa- you know even shops are being faced with these restrictions, and. I've read some of the restrictions um, in the businesses that pertain to some of my friends. Um, first of all, let's we can't talk about this without saying these people did not get the aid they were promised. That PPP money went directly to Chris's. You know, people want to applaud Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, which I don't even understand. Oh, when they were shamed into giving name. their money back? Mm. All of like they, they talked about those two. But if you look at the list, it's all these huge corporations who got the money because the yep. system was set up specifically to reward 
the winners, right? So yeah, like, yeah. And some people reported on that at the time and said, "Have you seen what's in this bill?" And then, but most yeah. of the media was just like, "Ooh, help's on the way. Good news, no, everybody." And, and it's help, like, "Well, no, help was not help was not on the way right. ever." And the people who believed it, you know. Thursday was heartbreaking for me because my gallery on Santa Fe closed and I had to go down and pick up my work Mm. and she had just been growing and she, you know, her seventh anniversary was yesterday. Um, and I'd been with her the whole time and she, she honestly, um, you know, she had just invested a lot of money because her, she had the best year ever last year and she just, you know, she was just like timing was terrible, but like she couldn't wait a month. For that help she has a small family like you know you can't a month is a long time and for people to say oh well they gave it back we're going to redistribute it ignores that time factor and ignores the fact too when you get to people who are small businesses who are being asked to open their doors now that they've been out of work for a month they're out of money and they're being asked to invest all this money in in personal protective gear and everybody having a mask and like, oh, my God. I right. mean, you know, hair salons are supposed to cover their chairs in plastic. How? Every right. time. Every right. time we cover the chair. Like, how? These people already don't have money. You're asking them to be in physical contact with people and risk their lives. It's just unreasonable. The entire thing is and so have, unreasonable. And, and the number of people who I feel like are going to actually go back to this, the number of people that I know who would go to a hair salon tomorrow or go get a tattoo or whatever yes. are zero. So even if it's like, you know, 10% or 20% of their clients would come back, that's not enough to sustain their business model, no. right? And, and the this states, additional the investment. And taxes from them. Yeah, they want taxes no matter what. So it's yeah. like, oh, well, you know, your business plan might not have included a restaurant with 25% of the tables available, but that's what you have now because we need our tax base. And that is gonna crush these businesses. I know. You know, especially since science is real and we are going to face a, a second wave of this that's going to be enormous. Mm-hmm. You know, um, right after this happened, Georgia had a thousand cases in yeah. a day, you know, yeah. like more than I think more than their previous totals. I would have to check to be sure. This is the problem with talking on a podcast is, no, you know, okay. I, I, I constantly fact check on things like Facebook. But here it's like, you know, somebody will have to fact check me. But but. You know, and then Florida puts out an order. We don't, we don't want to share our numbers. We're just not going to share our numbers because yeah. that makes reality go away. Yeah. You know, right? Like this just, is what's absurd. Yeah. Is like we've, we're seeing the result of, I mean, just the arguments I've seen from people on Facebook that I know and respect, and I'm like, what? That's what you think? That's how you think things work? Like, like right. my work is very research based and science based, and and you know, I spend a lot of time with my nose in very boring, depressing scientific journals, and and. Um, seeing people talk about herd immunity has just fucking killed me. Like oh I, God. I need to do a whole article about herd. Yeah, immunity. I, I'm a master's of public health with a specialization oh, in see, d- disease go. prevention and health promotion. Right there, and you it's know. it's been painful, sort of seeing all yes. what's happening on social media. But you know, I just want to get back to this. There's a cruel irony to the timing of this pandemic, right? Because mm-hmm. not only did it happen in an election year. It happened when the most bizarre – who's going to go down as the most bizarre backwards person in the history of the presidency is trying to be reelected. So you you make that cauldron. You you put that together and like it's just the worst set of scenarios that you, that you can think. It's fucking horrible. Because the, you know, it, it, him and all of right-wing media, it, their whole shtick has been – 
let's just minimize this and hope it goes away. And, and I don't know why they thought that was a good idea. And But they haven't let up on that, right? They're, they're still what they're trying to do. Yep. And the, the artificial deadline of basically, well, May 1st, it's all over. And, you know, Jared Kushner's in charge of it. And, oh God, and so, yeah, I, I'm trying to stay positive. It's and hard I, because I, the thing is, this is this is the end result of Rovian politics. So, like, this is really, you know, like mm-hmm. when we're when we're like in a post-truth era and where basically you create reality with spin, you know, like that your idea of of reality is influence and we see this all over the place it isn't just the right wing the left wing has the same thing sure you know we see we see this you know evidence of reality as in what we say is true but that's the stupidity of it all doesn't care about that because this this could have been a gift to trump had on day one he just took this super seriously and he mobilized everything to to and he would have gotten pushback from both parties certainly but yeah. if he had done aggressive across the board testing and got ahead of this thing and turned it around to where it, it we could have gotten top of it in a few months he would have been a hero and he would have cruised to re-election yeah if he would have right. been like the president or the prime minister of New Zealand like and we just were or like, South Korea we, we crushed it Everybody else is fucked, but look how good we did. Yeah, he would have gotten. See, that's, he would have been. That's afraid. forgetting that that that's forgetting who he is, and that is yeah. that he's a malignant narcissist, right? Right. So ex- exactly. Everything but, in his reality is created by lies. No, we can't he, have a pandemic in this country because I run it, and that looks bad for me. Right. Right. Well, he thinks if he can control <laughs> right. the numbers, that somehow he can control the reality, and to some yeah. degree, that's true in some parts of the country. If people don't have connections with people in other countries or in New York. They can easily believe that not seeing it around them, that this is a giant hoax. And for, course, for a while, but it won't last. To, no, well, he's primed the ground for that, right? Like he's mm-hmm. gotten everybody to believe everything's a hoax. So, I mean, one thing that's been interesting for me is I have a couple of friends in Italy and I've been following their story, you know, and like, so they've been like about three weeks ahead of us and watching. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing too is like, we don't have much reporting in this country anymore on what happens in the rest of the world. It's all very inwardly focused. Mm -hmm. And so people don't watch foreign media. They don't see what's happening in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. I've always watched foreign media. I've always felt like that was an important part of a news diet. And especially because if you've traveled uh, and you've watched major events go down in the U.S. from the perspective of the rest of the world. It's a different world. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You realize that it's like we, we were fed a whole lot of propagandistic bullshit. And one of the big things in this is how the media has played into what Trump wants, you know, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, first it was, oh, it's all old people. Well, you know, we were saying it was old people long after other countries have said, wait a minute, it's changing because as we know, viruses mutate. So, um, you know, I remember watching, you know, I'll watch all the mainstream news because I have a TV now, I didn't have a TV for 12 years. And I watch it mostly so that I can gnash my teeth and yell at the television and be be angry about what people are being fed. Um, it seems like you know, and and I have a high respect for journalism. I love journalism so much. I have been a part time journalist all of my life as a freelancer, and you know, like I just don't want to attack journalists themselves because I understand that the restrictions that are put on them is that like we have people with a fourth grade education running around as adults in this country who, mm-hmm. you know, that's how they process information and you have to play to that audience. Right. So right. I understand what's going on. But like when I remember there was this like, I think it was on CBS news or like, you know, breaking news, 
young people can get it too. I was like, what the hell? Right. Like, what? Right. Just the entire narrative of saying old people as opposed to people with health issues. Old people, of course, are going to have most more health issues because you collect them like trophies as you age. Yeah, and your immune system gets weaker, and you know all kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. But you know the idea that somehow children are safe or you know young people are safe was always a risky proposition to put out in the world you know and the way that this has been framed for people is you know i look at my parents right who are are just on a steady diet of fox news all day every day all day long yep so sorry it's all they do and so then i have a conversation with them and my dad in particular just like becomes a fox news pundit on my telephone and just parrots back to me like I will always know what's happening on Fox News based on the text messages I get from my dad. Oh my god! Yeah, it's like that um, or Trump's Twitter. Same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. But you know tr- what? It's MSNBC the same. MSNBC is just as bad. MSNBC has adopted all of the same techniques as Fox News. So even if they're slightly truthier, they are still allowing punditry to tell the story as opposed to just facts. I yeah, totally I agree, agree with you. I can barely watch them anymore. Yeah. I can't take I can't, it. I can't. I can't. Take it. I'm the same. I same. watch some Matto, maybe a little bit of Hayes, and that's about it i can stomach anymore yeah i can't stomach i can't Nato. i can't take it like just just fucking tell the story and don't stretch it out for the whole hour i can't take it <laughs> i hear that but at i least, used to like her but i can't do it it's i too feel much. like i i agree I, I do feel like though at least she's presenting facts no she is but this is the problem is like and you see this happen on on social media all the time is that um, you present facts and somebody comes back with an opinion piece and it's like, yep. okay, but you understand yep. the difference in this reporting, but people don't understand. They don't, they're like news illiterate and this I is know. a real problem. And, and honestly, like solutions exist for it. But at the, at the moment, um, we have people who are incredibly ill-informed and about everything, about every topic who think they're very well informed because they're in a news bubble that's yeah, been no, chosen that, for that's, them by Google. That's you know? my parents, right? Like they live in this Fox News world yeah. and they also live in an incredibly rural part of Colorado. And my mom, like they're convinced that this is just all just all being overblown and it's not really that big of a deal. And my mom's like, we only have 24 people who were even diagnosed with this. And only one person has died. And I was like, okay, you live in a community of 300 people. So so do the math right there. Right. And then figure out that you don't have testing. And then figure yeah. out that we're not even, you know, we don't even talk. I mean, the, the, the media, the news in, in other parts of the world is talking about the, the, the you know, the are not, the, the mm-hmm. reproductive yeah. rate. And yeah. we don't have a way to assess that. So we just don't even talk about it. But yeah. really, that's the metric for reopening. Well, yeah, we, we, we try various models and the models don't agree. And then, you know, yeah. I kind of support an approach like Nate Silver does with polls. Let's take a lot of the most reliable models we can find and maybe try to find an average and maybe that'll be our yes. best our best guess. But yeah, it's, we don't. And, and we don't. With flu, it's the same thing. People... When anybody throws out a number of how many people die of flu each year, like it's a guess. It's an educated guess because we yeah. don't test every dead body for no. reactive flu. We don't even keep track. And we're not doing that now. We're already seeing that there's like increased death rates um, during this period of time of people who weren't counted as having died from COVID-19. You know, it's like it's yeah. it's we don't have a way to test this. So our information is very spotty to begin with. No, I mean, you, you can do too, some fairly decent modeling, though. It's not like there's no way to get a, no, an idea. No, we do have models, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying that we don't have, like, 
we don't have the resources of, say, South Korea or even Italy at this point. You but know? no, well, nobody does. That's what, you know, the bigger thing as far as science goes, because one of my last jobs was actually running a study of trying to figure out opiate deaths from oh, all the wow. different medical examiners and coroner systems throughout yeah. the country. And it's really hard. That is fascinating. Because all the systems are different and some places have an actual uh, medical examiner with a license and some just have an elected coroner who could literally oh, be God. Joe Bob yeah. down the street, yep. Yep. got elected coroner and he has to who sign off on it. Who may have a opinion about like, he, why people he, die. He yep. might. Or, and, uh, and even when it's a, when it's a full-time medical examiner, like they have to do a lot of guessing. Like, oh, well, this yeah. fits the symptoms. This happened. Uh, I guess this is the cause. And so that's the same thing with any kind of flu or pandemic. And we have to take our best guesses. So really from my public health experience, when we're talking about confirmed COVID deaths, I would say anywhere from five to 10 times the number is probably more accurate. I think so too. Travis, I'm really curious since you do have this area of expertise, if I can ask you a question. I know I'm sort of flipping the interview format here, but (laughs) um, I I see people talking about the flu numbers and Mm -hmm. herd immunity in the same Mm -hmm. sentence. Mm -hmm. And am I right in assuming that like because we need a new vaccine every year that we don't actually have herd immunity when it comes to the flu? Uh, Well, no, because there's a different – (laughs) There's we have estimated that – there is a new strain of flu that you need to be inoculated against more or less every season, right? And it it can be existing strains of flu that have mutated. It can be – sometimes they're novel. The novel ones are the real dangers. That's where we get swine flu and H1N1 and bird flu and – you know, and now Corona and now a novel coronavirus, which and I'm not going to get really into the weeds of how a coronavirus is different from other viruses and how the family of them, etc. But the point is that, yes, this whole idea of herd immunity makes zero sense. And Sweden is doing this experiment now. And even if it were were to quote unquote work and a bunch of people, uh, X amount of people die and everybody else develops antibodies for what the novel coronavirus looks like right now come six or nine or 12 months when we get into the next flu season. Um, and I think we will probably see a seasonal drop with the warmer weather. I don't know. I don't think it's going to be a miracle silver bullet like Trump hopes. I hope he's right. That would be wonderful. But I don't think that's the case. In any event, when this comes back around next year, your, quote, herd immunity you have built up is going to be meaningless because the virus will almost certainly exactly. have mutated if it has not mutated already. And I, I definitely believe people are building antibodies to this strain right now, but there's just no way to know how long it's going to last. The virus does not call us and tell us, hey, I'm planning on mutating in four months and you're going to need right. you know, a, a new serotype. Um, so we need – uh, we need a vaccine and we need to be dynamic in continuing to create vaccines. This is this is another p- thing people don't understand about this coronavirus. This is going to be with us forever. Yes. And and also, too, it's going to mutate geographically in different ways, too. Like it's mm-hmm. not going to mutate every you know, it's not like it's not like getting your new operating system from Apple where everybody's going to get the same thing. No, and it, may, it might mutate in ways that make it sort of less virulent. We just we just don't that's know. That's true. Yeah, we don't know. But, but it will mutate because that's what viruses do. And, you know, we've seen it in, in HIV AIDS. We've seen it in a million other different types of viruses. And, and again, that's to your point. That's why I'm glad you asked the question ask the question, yes, that's why we need a new flu shot every year. If not, we wouldn't need an annual flu shot. So the right, idea is... Right, if you could just so take it once and herd immunity existed, then we wouldn't need an annual flu shot. 
Because we right. all have herd immunity a hundred years ago or whenever. Plus, what they call herd immunity vaccine. isn't the classic definition of herd immunity at well, all. Well, that's the thing no. that's so frustrating about this. My parents were telling me that we don't really need a vaccine because if enough people get infected, then everyone oh, will God. develop antibodies and then we'll all have herd immunity. And I was like, no, Ma, like herd immunity refers to vaccinated people. Like when we talk to anti-vaxxers and we say, you know, we need to develop herd immunity to protect the people around us who are the most sort of could be impacted by getting the measles or whatever, right? Are people who haven't been able to get the vaccine. So yeah, like no, herd immunity means enough people are inoculated. Enough people are inoculated, that, have been vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that enough people got sick. And, and also, doesn't that just, it's just like, well, we'll just let uh, everybody who dies die. That's fine. And, and what drives me crazy is the argument that Sweden is using and that the UK used until Boris Johnson himself almost died from it <laughs> was, oh, was basically the anti-vaxxer argument. And yes. I, I know this because I was – I don't want to say friends, but I was talking to an anti-vaxxer just to interest of talking to her and that's the argument she used. It's like if my kids get measles, they will probably survive, but now they yeah. will have built those antibodies. And obviously no, it's, it's very ridiculous. stupid no, and it's no. an awful idea, but that is I have, what – I have a few friends in that category because oh. I tend to keep friends around that I disagree with because I, I think it's important I, for our political discourse. I, I take my hat off difficult. to you. I can't do it. It's, I've, it's so I've hard. tried I have to hide and them. I can't do it. I have to hide them. Well, Travis, but I feel for like you I in particular, the anti-vaxxers, just but I wanna, you're not. No, you can't do I it. I want to push on this, though, because, like, we need to talk about, you know, because you mentioned, um, like, people, you know, it's okay that some people are going to die. Yeah. But let's talk about who's going to die. Yeah. There's a real serious civil rights issue. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Glad you brought You know, that. and, and this, is, this is what, you know, people don't seem to understand. Well, actually, some people do understand. White supremacists understand it very well, which I think is where these protests came from, because on April 9th, the CDC came out and said, hey, guess what? Black people are dying at a much higher rate. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and by April 15th, there were protests to reopen the country filled with white supremacists. Now, I'm sorry. I guess I'm paranoid right? for making those that connection or something. But No, you're no, absolutely not. not. They're, absolutely they're not out there saying, I need the help back to work so they can do my hair exactly, and nails and I need my cut my lawn my... and clean my pool. Yes. And, and I don't give exactly a shit if is. black people and people of color die. In fact, no, I prefer that's, it. No, that's, not, and, that's, a, that's mm-hmm. not a bug. That's a feature. Exactly. That's what they want. Yep. And and so like this is this is now bordering on I'm just going to say it genocide. Yep. This is genocide. Like if you're going to say okay, I mean, you know, and and I I do think it's important to say for people who might not realize like the reason it's not that black people are getting it at higher rates for anything to do with being black necessarily because right. if you look at Africa people are getting it at lower rates in many countries This has in nothing to do with a genetic component. This has no, to do with what systemic to do inequality with... in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. No, like also, and living conditions, you know, yeah. Living in food deserts, which I did for many many years, mm-hmm. uh, produces malnourished children, produces people who don't have as much immunity because they're in tighter quarters. Um, You have entire populations of people who are, who don't have health insurance. I mean, this has been the coolest thing about this primary season is like, well, 30,000 people without health insurance, big whoop, you know, 30 million, I'm sorry, 30 million, you know, oh, no big deal. 30 million people without health insurance. Well, if you, if you don't have health insurance, you go many years with undetected, uh, uh, you know, health issues that are not treated. Um, yep. you, and, and this has been my life very much, you know, um, you, you go many years without a primary care doctor watching your, 
your levels and doing blood tests and you know like this is the thing that people don't understand is if you don't have health insurance and you don't have access to health care you might have these underlying health issues and not even know it and yep. so you, you you're out there sent out there you think you're an essential worker who's being sent out there to work for too little money and that you're safe and you don't even know that you've got diabetes or and, some other health condition that makes you more at risk and when you go in for care because you may have some symptoms of this or you you know you're not feeling well or whatever's going on you're less likely to be believed. You're more likely to be yes. turned away. You're not going to be exactly. taken seriously. There's so many stories that I've read recently about people of color and black people in particular that have gone in and said, I'm feeling this way. I have all of these symptoms and they've just been turned away. Mm-hmm. Just, it's just so sent home and then they die. And not only that, but like most people aren't aware that there's an inherent bias in the medical system yes. against people of color and women because yes. you know, Rachel there could was tell you myth. all about that. Yes. Oh God. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's this myth, you know, that like, Oh, well, black, black people, people have a higher pain tolerance and women too, and women, women have a higher pain well, women yeah. and, and, and we're more hysterical yeah. and I'm sure yeah. it's not really that big of a deal and just go take some Midol and you'll be fine. Yes. And there's another vector in this too, when you consider fat people, because oh. if you live yep. in an area that's a food desert, if you live without healthcare, if you live, you know, eating as I have before at the gas station, because that's what's available to you, um, you, number one, get food poisoning very frequently. I can tell you that firsthand. I'm sure. um, but, you know, number two, it's like, yeah, you are going to be overweight. You are not going to have access to the nutrition you need to be healthy. And therefore, you know, you see, and this is what's just really infuriating me. You see these, you know, I, I sort of think fat people are one of the last groups in the country that's acceptable to openly hate you yes, know yes and and yeah. i keep seeing these things where it's like well if you're fat you're gonna die but we don't really care you know the yeah. sort of the attitude yeah and- two, mm-hmm. two things i'll, I'll jump mm-hmm. in about that one um i actually as in my master's program i wrote a, a paper a large paper on food deserts and oh, in the, nice. the obesity epidemic and two there's a podcast we absolutely love called yes. you're, you're wrong about and they have a wonderful episode on obesity and what they call the quote obesity epidemic and you definitely have to listen to that one because it's all bullshit everything you think you know about fat people is bullshit it's all nonsense they do basically like an entire series about like the things in history that we got wrong and they just go back and it's mostly like our history like gen xers and millennials sort of like stuff from the 90s and 80s um including like Tanya Harding and Monica Lewinsky and all oh kinds it's of wonderful podcast. It's the best it's podcast favorite. ever. It's called You're it. Wrong About. Yeah. So I, well, I'm going to, I just wrote it down. I'm going to yeah, totally check out the, that. the obesity podcast, but yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so I understand completely. And that's interesting. That connection with higher susceptibility to uh, COVID, but you know, you're, you're absolutely I mean, I right. was overweight uh, for sure um, at a time in my life. And I, I, I can remember going to the doctor because I have endometriosis and um, and I also had uh, some cysts rupture and I was in the ER and on the doctor's note right the like when you get released and they send you your care instructions or whatever it was like lose weight oh my god okay and it's so, like cool so I had an ovarian cyst rupture yeah that's why Losing weight is going to help. This is, this is, okay, so this has really impacted my health. Um, I've been overweight most of my adult life. I went, I didn't have health insurance much of the time or would have health insurance that I couldn't afford to use. And so I went undiagnosed with uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis for Mm -hmm. years and, and was overweight for that reason. We tried to lose weight, couldn't lose weight, Mm -hmm. you know, just almost impossible. 
And um, it wasn't until I had a visible goiter forming that the doctor could see that, that they were like, oh, well, we should get that tested. That might be cancer. <laughs> and then I lost my health insurance. And I waited two months for my new health insurance thinking I had cancer. So Jesus um, I have faced so many. I mean, here's like the best example of a story. So like for, you know, I'm a sculptor. So obviously I injure myself all the time, have all sorts of problems like that. But like, you know, for 10 years, I had this really intense back pain, mm -hmm. um, would go to the doctor. They wouldn't lay a finger on me. They would tell me to lose weight. They wouldn't do x-rays. They mm. wouldn't do any, you know, nothing, nothing, no diagnostic yeah. tools. Yeah. But what they would do is throw pills at me. So I had the finest collection of oxycodone bottles and Jesus. pills, and I really did not want to take them. I still had to function. I still had to do my job. I could mm -hmm. feel myself getting dependent on them. So I took uh, instead ibuprofen, which was recommended to me as, you know, well, if that doesn't work, take ibuprofen, mm. which is why I now have kidney disease. Oh. Um, so I went 10 years uh, with this horrible back pain and being told, limit your movement. Uh, don't lift anything heavy. Just you know, out of curiosity, how many, how many milligrams of ibuprofen a day were you taking? Oh, God. I mean, way over the recommended dose. I don't yeah. even know. Yeah. I don't even remember. I mean, anymore. for endometriosis, you know? I've been prescribed 800 milligrams a day every day, and I've never done that a day in my life because I'm not doing that. I think that. probably there were some days I was doing 1,200. You sure. know, like, I yeah. mean, I was just like mm -hmm. taking it like candy because I didn't want to be on the oxy. I didn't want to be yep. addicted. I could feel, I, I didn't like how it made me feel. Like I could feel a dependency forming way. on it. I don't it. like it. And so, like, it wasn't until I went to Ohio State for grad school that um, they have a very, really great medical program that a doctor said, well, let's get you an x-ray and see what's going on. And it turns out that I have a degenerative disorder in my SI joint that was causing the pain and that my cartilage in my SI joint is literally disintegrating and that the only answer for that is exercise and lifting heavy things. The mm. only answer for that is strengthening my core. Mm. So everything I was being told to do was making it worse. And for 10 years, I had no real treatment, even though I went to the doctor again and again, various doctors, not even the same doctor. Um, so it really is like, you know, when you talk about people in food desert communities, when you talk about people in poor communities, like they have so many underlying health issues just from neglect, even yeah. if they have health care. Yeah. You know, if you're fat, you are not getting good health care. I guarantee it. Yep. You know, yep. and there's so many medications that cause people to gain weight. There are so many disorders that cause people to gain weight. And yet we have this lie out there about like, you know, oh, you know, calories in, calories out. You got right. to exercise. You Diet know, exercise. well, if you're if you're on Prozac and you're gaining weight. And you don't live in a place where you can exercise or you're working three jobs you can't exercise and half the country's on Prozac. You know, it's I mean, this is this is the thing. It's like we've created all of these perfect storms. Yeah. And now right. we're and now we're acting like it's those people's fault, you know? Yeah. Well, it's you know, speaking of perfect storms and I think, you know, coronavirus is um, not to say anything necessarily good can come from this, but I think it hopefully it'll change our focus in terms of we've built this house of cards economy. We've built this house of cards medical system. We've built this house of cards social structure, right? Government, Government mm -hmm. where everything is humming along and, you know, more than half the country. Yeah, things are going fine. And then this brings into stark contrast how there is no structure beneath it. There is no safety net. There is no economic stability for so many people. The emperor has no clothes. The yeah. emperor has no clothes. Yeah. And you just hope that 
this wakes some people up and says, wow, this system really is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. This really doesn't work. mm -hmm. I think some people are waking up, but my fear is I don't see anyone in our government waking up. And that's what is so distressing in this time to see. I think a a few, but I, I think the bigger problem is so many people just, and we say it too, and we mean it a little differently, but so many people just say, oh God, I can't wait for things to get back to normal. Just let's right? get things back yeah. to normal. So what, normal what is normal? Normal is never good for most of us. Normal right? is that gilded cage, that that house of cards, that house of toothpicks in the breeze, just mm-hmm. waiting to topple over when something goes bad. Right? This is, and it's what like, was it's normal like a giant good for fiction. any of us? Why was normal good? Well, normal, normal was, was never good for the good. baby boomers. Like, yes. the, like, like we can yeah. get into the generational yes. thing here, but the let's people who that. want normal are the people who faced probably the least adversity of any generation in this um in this country's history and and they're screaming right now i know they are like uh, like i can't say the word baby boomer without being attacked because (laughs) i have many of them as friends i love many of them i know that you know people are upset about the not all this not all that but i'm sorry demographic realities are they exist they're real and when you have Three generations now who've spent their entire adult lives thus far in income inequality, in flat wages. And you have one generation who doesn't see that and doesn't understand it. That's where you get this idea of like, oh, well, normal worked for me. Well, your right. normal was never my normal. Right. You know? Right. That, I never got to share your normal. Right. You know? So, so and the fact that we are that disrupting the their normal is very distressing to them. Oh yes, because by no, disrupting their normal living wages and healthcare, mm-hmm. it is too much mm-hmm. to ask for. And, and this is where it mm-hmm. gets really hard for me. I feel like I've spent an entire primary season having moderates yell at me that I should just go die and I don't deserve healthcare because I made bad choices in my life. You know, right. really. Those crazy people are in moderates. <laughs> those are those are right wingers who have decided they've had enough of Trump because he's bad for the brand. <laughs> right. No, but the problem is, that, and and now we're going to get into where people will hate me. Um, the Democrats are largely a right-wing party now. We have two right-wing parties, and that's because the Republicans who were dissatisfied were welcomed with open arms into the Republican Party, and they are allowed to, or I mean, into the Democratic Party. I'm sorry, that was a Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> but they, but you know, and they are allowed to drive the conversation. So nobody, nobody shrieks when moderates say, "Well, I might just vote for Trump." You know, everybody's oh no no we have to appease them we have to appease them we have to make sure that mm-hmm. we don't go too far left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the left is taken mm-hmm. for granted because the left is largely mm-hmm. poor people and nobody gives a fuck. You yeah. know, I mean, let's just get. I, really I would clear about I would this. make a different devil's argument um, uh, argument here because I, we've been fighting this fight with our peers for a long time. I would say a lot of the left is younger people who yes. don't consistently show up to vote, and it's this weird chicken and egg thing where uh, a, lot, a lot of these politicians. Uh, the young people say, well, we're not showing up to vote unless you give us something. And the politicians are saying, we're not giving you anything unless you consistently show up to vote. And we're kind of locked in the standoff here. And we know it because we butt heads with these folks a lot. And the numbers bear it out that our generation, the younger people are still not showing up in the numbers of the boomers. And okay, but let's talk about this. This the is older super folks. important. Mm-hmm. This is super important because what what's not being talked about in the media is – the massive, wide-scale voter suppression of young people in this primary. Oh, absolutely. And how that's going to affect us in the general, because it is. Because in 2016, the Democrats ignored the fact that this very obvious, very visible voter suppression was taking place. And the same voter suppression kept the same same people away from the polls. You've got the purging through uh, interstate cross-check. 
that purging is still going on, even though interstate crosscheck is largely dismantled. Um, so in this election, you know, the, the, in 2016, the focus was largely in poor communities. And the ACLU has been estimating that nearly 2,000 polling places have been closed since the yeah. Voting Rack, Rights yep. Act was gutted in 2015. Yep. Yep. Thanks, Robert. So, yep. yeah. So this year what we saw is uh, seven-hour lines at schools all around the country and people going, oh, look at these young people going out to vote. Well, guess what? Guess who doesn't have privilege to stand in a seven-hour line? Mm -hmm. Young people. Young people who, you know, largely uh, are poor, you know, because this economy has kept them poor. And young people who have families and young people who, by the way, face some pretty draconian attendance policies at schools now because that's a trend that's happening where if you miss two days in a row, you're kicked out and lose all your money, you know? So, you know, so so literally young people are being blamed for not showing up when we have evidence visible evidence on the news of seven hour lines and nobody is drawing that connection and saying, Oh yeah, I guess not everybody could wait in a seven hour line, huh? No. And And you know what? I will, I will grant you that. But I, we also happen to know many people very personally who just don't take the time to do it. What's the excuse in California where you can mail in your ballot? I'm sorry, here in Colorado where you can mail in your ballot. In Colorado, we have much higher participation rates. Same thing in Nevada where you could, where you could register up to the last day. Here's what I find. I mean, I'm a teacher, right? So I've worked with like students for years and years and I, I, I have a couple theories about this. Number one, my students right now, they don't know how to vote. Nobody's ever taught them. They've never had civics classes. Ugh, They're completely that confused. That pains me. That pains and, me. And the really sad thing is then they go off to college, their first chance to vote. Mm-hmm. And nobody has told them when they move to another state that the rules will be different or how they, they navigate it. Or that they need and, yeah. to, yeah, that they need to register before they've even moved. And that's why very progressive places like Washington are having automatic registration and, yes. and all kinds of wonderful things. And that's why Republicans fight that. But I mean, yeah. I had a student last year who was in tears that she couldn't earn 2018, I guess, like was in tears that she couldn't vote in her first election. She'd been so excited, but nobody mm. told her, well, you need to bring your birth certificate when you move. Yeah. And she mm. couldn't get it in time. And so, you know, students, so I spend a whole lot of my time teaching students to vote. You know, I, I contacted yeah. um, my, my wonderful friend at work, Tia Anthony, who's the diversity coordinator and said, Hey, my students don't know how to vote. Can we just like put something in the information packet they were given when they're accepted to school so they know how to register so that we can walk them through that. And she was like, yes. And it's like such an easy fix, Mm. you know, but like people take it for granted. Older people take it for granted that young people know how to vote. Nobody has told them. And it's very confusing to figure out on your own. So that's one thing. Another thing is that I really believe that we are shaped by our first political memories. So, for example, Mm -hmm. I'm a classic Gen Xer here that my first political memories are Watergate. And now I am a cynical fuck and have been my entire life. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't trust any politicians. I don't believe any politicians. And everybody's like, you know, St. Bernie, which let's let's not even get into the anti-Semitism <laughs> of calling a Jewish man a saint. I just can't with that, you know. But um, I hadn't really thought that, of that one before. Oh, God, that huh. one drives me freaking crazy. But like, yeah. you know, like when you when you think about it, it's like, no, even Bernie, like Bernie, I'm to the left of Bernie. Bernie's the compromise, you know, for many of us. So. Okay. You know, like when you think about it, it's like, like, I think what what hallmark of a lot of progressive people is, is that we're not placing our faith in a person as much as as ideas and policy. But that's that's how it should be. Right. That's how it should be. And that's not how the people we argue against. No, it becomes a cult of personality because that's the like the natural tendency of politics and people to get caught up in hero worship caught up in. 
we're totally caught up in high school personality politics yes. and that's it, you know? Yes. Drives and me it's crazy. so frustrating. I hate oh it. my God. I hate it too. And I can't take it anymore. And this is why, you know, like so many things are wrong. But when you think about the first political memory idea, which I haven't read this anywhere. I don't know if this is a theory that's out there. I should probably look and see somebody else is saying this. Um, cause so often I think it's my idea and I see other people saying it, but, but <laughs> you know, the universal subconscious is real and we read things and forget that we read them. But like, you know, when I've talked to millennials over the years, when I've, you know, because for year after year, I'm trying to get my students to vote, right? Like that's always mm-hmm. part of my, I feel part of my job as a teacher to try to get them to vote, to try to encourage them, not to encourage them politically in one direction or another, mind you, because I feel like, you know, um, academic freedom extends to students as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I shouldn't be influencing them in that way. Uh, that said, I mean, once I figure out everybody in my classroom is is of the same ilk, a lot of times the conversations get pretty great. But but what happens is the millennials that I would try to convince to vote, they'd be like, eh, it doesn't matter. Your vote isn't counted anyway. Yep. And I started talking to them about, and I started talking to them about like, what, what do you, where did you learn about politics? Mm-hmm. Like, did you ever have, I started pressing on this. And what I started to find is like, well, the 2000 election yep. was really their first memory. So my first, I'm a millennial. <laughs> I'm an older end of the, of the millennial spectrum. You and Travis are both Gen Xers. Uh, but, but my very first memory was the um, 90, what was it? The Perot Bush Clinton oh, election. Yeah. But my most significant political memory was the 2000 election. I was an election judge because yeah. I wasn't old enough to vote. And yeah. that was my first significant, like, I understood what was happening in politics. And it literally was like, okay, so none of this fucking matters. Legitimately, That's like, the problem. none of it matters because some fucking asshole who's the cousin, the now president's cousin runs an election board and the Supreme Court just decides like it's yeah. a it's a significant my, problem with my generation. Like we are, we were raised to be like, oh, you can vote. But my, then like somebody can just take it away from you. my first political memory was Iran Contra. And I was really? I was 11 or 12 and I actually watched the hearings and naive that I was. I said, wow, well, this. He, this guy's finished. He's going to be impeached and removed from office. Nope. And everyone's like, eh, no, we like Reagan. It's, I'm sure it's fine. Whatever. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like it's really crazy how um, these young memories – I mean I was like six or seven and I actually thought Nixon was handsome, which shows you exactly how little I knew. <laughs> um, but – you know, oh, I was like, he has, a, was, he has a pronounced jaw. Um, I don't really know what it know. was. I don't see it now. But, you know, <laughs> it's super embarrassing. I, I mean, I also was like in love with, you know, like Eric Estrada and Chip. So it's like, you know, who yeah, they look similar. Who, I, yeah, I, could, case, I could see that. Sure, yeah. But but when you when you get down to it, it's like, you know, like you're so young and your idea about the world is being shaped in that time. And, yep. you know, and, and I had this interesting situation where my dad was a hardcore Republican. And my mom was a hardcore Democrat. Mm. And, hey, it's which my family. Explains why I'm neither. My family. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that has a lot to do with. But this is why Gen Z gives me so much hope, because yes. these kids. Oh, my God. I mean, my class that yeah, had, they get to, it. had to leave campus and go online. They were having the most incredible conversations, and I'm so sad that that energy and chemistry didn't really continue online. I tried to get it to, but I couldn't. They just didn't want to do it over Zoom. But they were sitting around in class working on their stuff and having political conversations wherein they disagreed, wherein they dis- they were well-informed. Nobody yelled at each other. Nobody got mad. The thing I love about you know? them so much, and like I think when we talk about generations – there's always this tendency to shit on the generation right below you and mm-hmm. to blame the generation right above you. 
And we always skip Gen, Gen X because you guys we don't exist. Don't exist. Um, we're so we're like, Leon Brady. Millennials <laughs> hate the boomers and the boomers hate us and they forgot you guys existed. Um, so that's sort of the lock in battle, right? Is the boomers versus the millennials. But I refuse to shit on Gen Z. I find them to be incredibly no. inspirational. I find them, the thing I love the most about them is like, millennials are like the middle child. So when the boomers criticize us, it hurts our feelings. Gen Z gives zero fucks. Yeah. They, they just give zero fucks. Well, and it's I mean, so apparent like, when okay, like. The, okay, boomer is the greatest thing. Is the invented. greatest thing ever. But it's, it's actually Gen X is whatever, which nobody heard because we're such a tiny generation. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's the same thing. Right. But mm-hmm. they're just same like, attitude. you can see them on Twitter, right? People criticizing these kids who are literally children. Um, who've like made the spotlight, whether it was from Parkland or it's Greta Thunberg oh or whatever, right? So ugly. And like they attack these kids, and these kids just come back with like the best snarkiest. They are savage. Oh my god, they, they are, are savage. savage, and I love them because they just don't the give is- a shit. Like you do that to a millennial, and we're gonna be like, "That's mean," but you know. <laughs> but like, I say too though, oh. I've been defending millennials forever. Thank you. Ever since the avocado shit, avocado toast, toast. started, whatever. Like I have been. I swear because, to God, because we were shit on I was literally called a slacker in a job interview and I did not get the job um right you know and 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 really it's just like that that shitting on I don't think it is the natural order of things truth be told because when you think about how the baby boomers were treated and a really good book that everybody should read is a generation of sociopaths by Bruce Gibney like amazing (laughs) book you know like like because he explains this Mm -hmm. yeah well I mean really they were engineered to be because they people thought World War II was the end that that the world was going to end and then these you know soldiers return and all these babies are born and it's seen as this like new spring morning in america all of a sudden you know look at there's like hope again Mm -hmm. these children were treated like they were gold and as a result they grew up feeling very entitled about what was due them they never faced adversity in terms of the economy when they were young they feel like they faced adversity with the vietnam war but they forget that our generations have never not been at war. We That's have right. been at war since we were young. Um, you know, when I remember how terrified I was in my early 20s when we went to war with Iraq yes. and how how I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is, you know, I actually told my boyfriend at the time, I'll hide you so they can't draft you, you know, and mm. who, who, who later became my husband, who is now my ex-husband. But, um, you know, I, I think that, like, they don't understand because they think they face adversity. And this is the yeah. problem with great privilege is that you get white people who are poor who think oh well I face the same things as a black person who's poor when they don't right and then you see this generational privilege that they deny exists and I you know I'm sure you've seen the endless wars on my Facebook page about this with people who I consider dear friends and love but they have to realize it's like I mean I've had people unfriend me and block me that I've known for 20 years because they can't grasp the fact that they have a privilege that other people don't have and they feel like that means that they should feel guilty about it. And instead what it means is, no, you should work to change it. Yeah, Hello? I've always <laughs> banged my head against the wall with those people who, oh, you have, you're, you have white guilt. You're, you're guilty liberal. It's like, no, yeah. it's not guilt. It's recognition of privilege. And it's responsibility. Wanting it's not guilt. It. It's responsibility. It's an acknowledgement of responsibility. Well, and and I look at when the it comes to generational like, privilege, they also caused much of this. That's what I'm... Voting that's, blocks. Well, like, my problem is like, we, after World War II, right, built this incredible, and after the Depression, like, we built this incredible social safety net. 
we had the GI Bill. We we had all all kind all of the social safety nets, and they just grew up with all of that, right? They mm-hmm. that was just natural. So everybody not only that they want to claim have, that that they created it too, right? They which they claim that they created the civil rights didn't. movement, right? Which holy shit, no, um, no, so long before you. <laughs> but like then, so they grew up with the privilege of having all of that, and then have systematically dismantled it, so yes. that we have none of it. And now they're like, what are you complaining about? And it's like, I mean, you literally took away everything that made you successful from me. I don't have any of the opportunities that you had because you took them away because you're selfish and you didn't want to pay taxes. And they brag about changing the world without acknowledging the ways in which they changed it for the worse. I mean, one great example of this is when I was uh, in undergrad, you know, um, I I was really struggling. I was working three jobs. Nobody in my family had ever gone to school before. Um, And so, like, I went to get food stamps and was basically told, no, you can't have food stamps. And I I thought about it. And I thought about, well, wait a minute. Like, all those students in the 60s had food stamps. Like, Mm -hmm. I know I read about that. I know Mm -hmm. I heard about that. Mm -hmm. And it's because they saw themselves and their peers abusing the system. And they assumed everybody was doing the same, Mm -hmm. you know. And, And as a result, it's like these things, you know. Just the attitude about wages alone, like, well, why should a sandwich maker get $15 an hour when somebody who's an EMT is only getting $20 an hour? Why should that be? Well, it should be because you kept wages artificially flat for 45 years while the cost of living kept going up, you know, and people don't understand that even $15 an hour isn't enough to catch people No, that was what we were trying to fight for 10 years ago. 10 years ago. $15 an hour now is not enough. No, it's not. Even if we pay people that, that's not enough. It needs to be more like 20, 25 an hour. And And this is where we get into the ridiculousness about the rent strike. You know, the idea that like, like I, I totally support these people in the rent strike. I think it's ridiculous that like anybody should be demanding rent when people aren't getting paid. Because again, let's face it, the economy didn't actually close for landlords. So even though Congress decided that mortgage companies would have to work with them and give them some relief. That's being applied unevenly, first of all. But secondly, I am certain there are people who get that relief who still expect rent from their tenants. Yep. Um, You know, about 80 percent. You know, we keep having this, oh, mom and pop landlord conversation. Mm -hmm. But that's like 20 percent of the people. That's like 80 percent are like big companies. So they're still making their money. But the problem is people are like, you know, I heard Polis suggest the other day. It's like people can just, you know, amortize their rent and have their rent go up. People are not making enough to pay their rent as it is. Where does he live? How does he not know this? I know. You're not going to be able to pay three months of back rent on top of the rent you can barely pay. But Polis is in the pocket of the developers and he always has been. Yeah. Yeah. He was. We always knew he was a compromise. Yeah. True. He is as our governor. And like he's not pissed me off tons. Same with Hancock. Uh, right. Oh, well, no. Hancock oh, God, is. I, I mean, Hancock, Hancock, Hancock and Polis, they run in the same circles, though. Like, they are part of the, friends. Part of the same neoliberal they are friends. way of thinking. And in, in Colorado politics, like, they run in the very same circles, which is part of the Colorado Democratic Party, which is oil and gas and developers exactly. run it. And that's Democrat or Republican. We didn't either of them in the primary, did we? No. I mean, <laughs> I, I ended up voting no. for Hancock because I couldn't have a racist white lady be the mayor of Denver. Um... But I was I was actually on Lisa Calderon's oh, you mean team it? and helping write position papers for Lisa Calderon. So I loved her. I it was so the, hard for me when Jamie, she endorsed Jamie. Yeah, I couldn't I, do it. I just can't. I would rather I, have I, a corrupt black man than a 
racist white lady. Like that's I had end of the day. Personal experiences with Jamie that told me that she couldn't be the person. Yeah. Um, you know, when when the city, you know, after the ghost ship fire, when the city attacked mm-hmm. the artists, yes. um, you know, that that is when I got to know Jamie. And Jamie, you know, she's not a bad person. She's a clueless person. And, you know, I make that distinction because I actually do think that Hancock is not clueless. He's bad. Um, He actually has Mm -hmm. been poor and he understands how these things impact his community. I mean, I've I've talked to members of his community and they feel incredibly betrayed and abandoned by him. Oh, I lived I lived two blocks from Manual High School and before that five. I mean, I I was in that neighborhood for so many years. But like, honestly, you know, the, the point is, and this is important. We are in this nice shiny blue city in a nice now turning shiny blue state and we were able to pass a lot of progressive things but we are still fighting tooth and nail just for some basic things money and yeah to get right and, well and this is this is this gets to the heart of the problem is that what does it mean to be blue anymore yeah. when the party's been trojan horsed by republicans whose opinions are more uh deemed more important and valuable than the opinions on the left i mean you know, the, the problem, you know, the problem in the race became like, well, you know, who do you even endorse? Um, honestly, I don't remember who I voted for. I don't think it was either of them. I think I wrote somebody in. I don't even remember. I was so depressed and disillusioned by how mean that race got that yeah. actually people people are continually asking me to run for office. And uh, at, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> at this at this point, I think I've decided that, like, it is completely anathema to my personality and it's Same. just a way to make me miserable. Same. Like, I hate meetings. And I'm an introvert. And I can't imagine going out and shaking that many hands, especially now. Well, I can't but, um, I can't you know, agree to something that I don't believe. I, I, I'm just not a compromising to, yeah. person to I just can't. It's I the nature of politics can't. that you have to raise money. And when you raise money, you're then beholding beholden to right. who yeah. you raise and money like, from. more than like the Democratic Party being beholden to Republican opinions. It's beholden to money. And that's exactly. where we come. That's, that's the problem. Right. This is this is why this is this gets to the thing like that. I that this is the thing that makes everybody hate me. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, all sides, because, you know, first off, I haven't been a Democrat since the 1990s. Um, when I was very young uh, and Bill Clinton was elected, I was horrified that women were being thrown under the bus just as they are now with Tara Reid and Mm -hmm. that I was supposed to just somehow embrace this cognitive dissonance that like, oh, those women are liars. But, you know, I was in a women's studies program in school and I was working with battered women and and I had been uh, sexually harassed at more jobs than not and sexually assaulted a number of times by that point. And there was no way I could go there. So I dropped out of the Democratic Party and became an independent, um, proud independent at this point. But, you know, I would register as a Democrat from time to time to participate in the caucus or mm-hmm. something. Um, and I've always been politically aware. People assume, like, if you're an independent that you're not politically informed. I would say I'm 10 times as politically informed as most Democrats because I wind up paying attention to both sides. Um, and I hate the Republicans, but I'm angrier at the Democrats because I hold them to a higher standard. I expect better. Yeah. And so people are always like, why aren't you picking on the Republicans? And I'm like, because it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Right. Like, like, let's let's hold these people to account. Let's hold them to That's a standard. Right. Yep. And that apparently this is what made me so angry about the whole vote, vote blue no matter who crowd is like, look, there's a time and a place for this. And it's right before the general. Yep. But you're doing this in a primary, which means you're virtue signaling to the DNC that you really don't care who you know, they pick th- for that, you. That's fair, but I understand the impulse of the vote blue no matter who people, especially how traumatized they are from 2016. 
I, I get that. But the problem is they are naive and misunderstand politics. And it's like, you know, politics has levels. It's like, you know, level one is voting. That means mm-hmm. you're participating. Level one. Many of us are many levels above level one. You know, many yeah. of us are like doing activism or writing or becoming involved in political campaigns. And so these people don't understand the harm they're doing. And yes. if you try to explain it to them, they get angry at you. And it's frustrating because that's how I think we got Biden in many ways is yeah. that this this whole I, idea. I, I have to disagree with that more than a little bit. I, I certainly think the machinery of the party wanted Biden. But oh, yeah. ultimately, that's that's not what compelled people, especially huge numbers of people of color, to vote for Biden. And, you know, we can talk about the dynamics of that. And, and we have talked about it quite a bit on this podcast. Yeah. And it is not the fault of people of color. It's the fault of white people. No, we're, we're actually not saying opposite things because yeah. mm-hmm. Biden was the safety choice. Right. Biden right. was the one that made people feel like they could go back to normalcy, whatever that is. So that's why you have this huge generational divide. It's like the, the well, black people who voted for Biden were largely older. And I saw so many of my friends like it was cracking me up a little bit. It was almost like it needed its own hashtag. How many of my friends were frustrated with their parents who were trying to yeah. talk them out of voting for Biden? But I, I think a large part of the reason that so many black folks voted for Biden was that that's their choice of who they think shitty white people will vote for. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that's they can't really, that's guarantee. Really what it is. Right. They can't. They, they look at the field and they look at who they think shitty white people will vote for, and it's not anybody but Biden. So they all voted for Biden. And I get it. They're not wrong. That's exactly how right? Biden became VP in the first place. Yep. That's exactly why he was chosen. Oh, we're not we're not arguing we're not arguing yeah. any of that. Yeah, and, absolutely. And yeah. We, we are 100%. we are fine to tell you right now. <laughs> that, I don't want to vote for that, that guy. come the fall, like so we angry. will we it's will through grit teeth knock doors and and make calls and do whatever we have to do to get Trump the fuck out of office. But Biden was very last on our list um he was right before bloomberg and tulsi yeah when bloomberg came in i was like fuck it i'll take biden but like tulsi gabbard is a joke um so it was like and and bloomberg bloomberg completely blew blew apart this argument of like you know well he's not a dem well guess what neither is bloomberg he's a republican congratulations right yeah so like bloomberg was the very bottom of my list biden is second to low so so we're not going to pretend to be excited about biden i don't see a lot of our friends no but i i will honestly say and i will be hated for it but i will honestly say i consider myself undecided right now and i need to be won over and this argument that we can push him left happens now. It doesn't happen after he's elected. So I think I see you I see some of that. Yeah, you vote. see some of that happening already, um, and I hope it continues. And I think it's happening because because people, you know, like the the youth movement coming together through various organizations and writing a letter with demands to Biden that was like utterly ignored, you know, and now mm-hmm. Biden, it's very hard for me as a survivor to vote for a rapist. Like this is mm-hmm. where I'm really having problems with how this is being handled. The fact that Tara Reid is now on trial and being drugged through the mud after just accepting Christine Blasey Ford's story because yep. it was against a Republican. Yep. And then, you know, add a little dose of the kind of misogyny that's coming towards Survivors and the fact that we are being bullied and harassed for saying, hey, by the way, rape is wrong. Can we agree on that at least? Yep. You know, um, the idea that that what Biden did is so crazy because he's Biden. I mean, my God, I was against Biden halfway through his fucking VP. It's it's 
in 2015, John Stewart did a whole segment on how creepy Joe Biden was. And women have been speaking up about this for years, but suddenly it's a surprise. I mean, literally, you can listen to like, I don't know, a year and a half ago on this podcast. And I'm like, I don't want it to be Biden because something's going to come out. Look at how he is with women. It will not surprise me. Yeah, we said that over There's going to be more women and they're going to come forward and it's going to be something worse than him smelling their fucking hair. It's yeah. going to be something rapey and we all fucking know it. So we can't have Biden. And here we are. And everyone's like, but where, where did this come from? And I'm like, no, it's always been there. But that, I've been talking but, about yeah. this for a year and a half. No, no one should be surprised. That, and no one should be yeah. like, oh, my God, I'm shocked. That's this a larger the Uncle theme. Joe. Yeah. Like, no, he's not. He's creepy and he's weird. And if we're seeing him do these things in public in front of cameras, I can't imagine what he's doing behind the scenes. And and when when he comes out and says, you know, I'm going to choose a woman VP, and 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 you know, people who are who are way into the identity politics side of things, which, to be clear, it includes me. I just don't really yeah. like the fact that it's only that sometimes. Yeah. But um, you know, like like they're like, oh yeah, a woman, and I'm like, oh my god, I can't even imagine what this woman's going to have to put up with and how she's going to be treated. That's all I could think. You know. Well, it's sort of like, I would I would actually probably disagree. I I think Uncle Joe would probably rather let a young dynamic VP take on more of a Cheney role and run shit while he can go out to pasture. That's my hope. Maybe it's naive. Quite possibly, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is for women, there's this real condescension that comes from Joe always. Every woman Mm -hmm. he ever talks to, he is Mm -hmm. condescending towards. And to see somebody as a leader that you believe in, a leader that you care about, you have to feel they represent you and understand your concerns. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like whoever he chooses as VP, which I hope to God is somebody good um, that that will make me feel better about this awfulness. Um, you know, like she's going to be publicly humiliated by him at least once or twice, at mm. least. Yep. And that's what yeah, I'm talking right. about. The yep. fact right. that it's going to yep. be painful for women to feel that we are not yep. represented by somebody who, like, we've just gone through Trump, you know, yep. like, and the pussy grabbing. Yeah. And now, and I said at the very beginning of this, before Biden even entered the race, I said, so help me God. And I said this publicly on Facebook many times. So help me God. If I am forced to choose between a pussy grabber and a hair sniffer in this election, I will devote the rest of my life towards destroying Democrats. And I'm going to. <laughs> I mean it. I'm not I know. I'm, I'm not look, joking around. <laughs> I I got to tell you, like 2016, I <clears throat> feels like a lifetime ago. Um, yeah. But I I I was running around screaming and yelling about how I was a proud Democrat and I was a Democrat through and through and blah, 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 blah. And. I'm never going to vote for a Republican, right? No. I'm not no. doing that. Um, I'll continue to vote for Democrats as long as that is my choice. Uh, but I am with you on this idea that, like, man, really? Like, that well, was, wanna, that's, that's what we're doing? One, that's what we're doing? I want to clear up one thing for your listeners because there's a really bad idea out there that, like, a vote for – not voting for Vi- Biden is voting for Trump. That's not true. What I have done my entire life, because we live in a country where we have the Electoral College, 
as I closely followed polling, and if the Democrats weigh in advance and I don't want to vote for them, I don't. I vote for who I want to. If the polling is close enough to be worried, you know, I, look, I convinced I don't know how many progressives to vote for Clinton in the last election because it was easy to see where it was going. Yes. I didn't think she was going to win. And um, it was hard because they were being constantly bullied and they didn't want to vote based on that. And that depresses the down ballot. So we really have to get the Democrats to understand that bullying and cajoling isn't going to work. And then if somebody voted for Trump, good God, how is it he's better than Trump an argument that you can make? If you're trying to convince people to vote, you don't know who they voted for last time or where their politics are. You have to assume that you're trying to convince them to vote for something, not against it. Right. You know, it's an absurd notion, this hubris that everybody thinks like you. But that's what has to change is people have to stop believing that everybody thinks like you. And this is where I think people get confused with me because they're like, well, but if you don't vote for Biden. I'm like, well, you know, I may vote for Biden. I don't know yet. Like, I, but I'm going to vote strategically and smartly, and I'm not going to waste my vote if 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 Biden's going to win anyway. And Colorado's a blue state generally. You know, if Biden's going to win anyway, and that is clear. And by clear, I mean twenty point lead clear. Um, then, yeah, I'll vote for who I want. You know, Jesse Ventura kind of has me intrigued. But oh my God, but. What? <laughs> He was a good governor. If he runs for the Greens, he was a good governor. Yeah, he's a little on that anti-vaxxer. No, he know. totally is. I'm joking. I'm joking. I mean, I'm not. <laughs> all, all I'm saying is Biden is very unsavory for me. And so. Hey, we're, my, we're with you on that. We Listen, yeah. a, a lot of my good, close friends in the Daily Coast universe who I, I love them. They're great. We've had them on the show. They are trying to get excited about Biden, even though mm. it's very transparent because they were not a few months ago. And I just can't buy that. I'm no. sorry. I, I, I can't do it. I Biden, can't do it. Biden personally destroyed my life in many ways with the bankruptcy bill. You know, mm. I mean, I am saddled under an enormous amount of student loan debt my entire life. Hey, because, high five. Me too. Yeah. Well, my situation is really interesting because before I ever graduated, I was in default, which is a neat trick that Sally May oh, wow. did. Um, they <sighs> they transposed a couple dates on my uh, paperwork and they refused to change it. So I graduated in default. Had what? no grace period, spent six months really depressed and fighting with them on the phone and not able to deal with it and wound up. I think they did give me a short grace period that I ran through. I can't remember. Like, you know, I was really depressed and I was really trying to work this out because I'd worked three jobs all through school so that I could keep my student loans down. And um, the only choice they gave me was to consolidate at 18 percent interest. Mm. So I graduated school with thirty thousand dollars of of uh, student loans for the six year plan that I had been on since I got a double major, and I owe over two hundred thousand now that I'll never be able to pay off. And yeah. and the fact that Biden, you know, I didn't sign on for not being able to declare bankruptcy. My whole thought in this was, well, I'll just if it gets really bad, I'll declare bankruptcy. And I was on the income sensitive plan thinking, well, I don't want to declare bankruptcy, but if I have to, I will. Yeah. Nobody wants to declare came. bankruptcy. That's like right, the abortion exactly. thing, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Right, like, so right. then 2005 comes and I'm like, oh shit. Thanks uncle Joe. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. So now, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I can't get excited about him. And I, I've decided that I'm going to just step out of electoral politics this cycle because I think it would be worse for me to be out knocking doors disingenuously not believing in it but I mean I'm I'm very politically active when it comes to you know my work is very much just about climate change and extinction and trying to raise awareness around that and I you know that you don't have to be involved in elect there's plenty of people to tote that water in electoral politics 
um, well, you do have to of, vote. Well, and plenty of local politics sure. to get into, too. If you don't want to oh, go yeah, knock doors definitely. for Joe Biden, go knock doors for your local state rep, your local state senator well, who's I, running, like, your... your I'm going to take myself out of the board. electoral thing and focus on the environmental cool. stuff because I feel like it's largely getting ignored now with coronavirus. So I feel like yeah. I'm going to pivot to where I can do the most good. If there's a local candidate I believe in that needs my help, of course, I'm there for them. But like, like, yeah. like, I, I just want to I feel like it's I, I've been reassessing, like, where is it important to spend my time? Where, yeah. What is it important for me to do? And that's where I think my voice can make the most impact. But it certainly doesn't mean I'm checking out, like, yeah. obviously not at all. But right. but, you know, I can't go out and disingenuously pretend that I support somebody who I don't. So um, I, you know, I it's hard, like, you know, and then. You know, I I'm I know a lot of people who are way to the left of me who are like, you know, we have to have a third party now. We're going to vote green this time. We got it. You know, and it's like, no, I still well, see that, Trump as the existential threat that we have to get rid of. Yeah. You know, we and can't I think not we're gonna get rid of him. Talk about like, like my crazy frustration plan. with well, my frustration with this idea that like that it's not physically structurally possible to yes. elect for president a third party candidate because of the electoral college it's just not structurally just not the electoral possible college. not just the electoral college although that is definitely the biggest impediment absolutely but where i see it as problematic is you know you mentioned ross perot before and that was like mm-hmm. the last time we really saw a third party candidate get on the debate stage because i think I think it was after that. I can't remember if it was after that or after Nader. Uh, the you know the the debates used to be run by the League of Women Voters, which was a nonpartisan organization, and and so anybody could be on that debate stage no, according networks. to their rules. Yeah. No, it's not. It, you would the think. parties, the parties. And, well, and the, the networks, net, the networks, the networks uh, license the debates and make money off them. But who controls the debate stages is the Commission on Presidential Debates, which is a private corporation that was formed by the Republican and Democratic parties mm. in collusion with one another. And they're the ones that created the rules that disallow third parties from making it on the debate stage. And they arrest third parties who show up to be in the audience. So. Um, this is really a structural problem that has to be addressed before any third party can get anywhere in a presidential debate. Well, I don't think we have to worry about it this year. I don't think we're having debates for a myriad of reasons. You know, I'm not even sure we're having an election, but I said that when Trump came into office. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, could we're, there be a better Reichstag fire than the coronavirus? Right. Sure. Now, now, right. We're, we're, now we'll have an election. I agree. With I you. hope so. But, I'm a little bit but debates, but, uh, neither Trump nor Biden, Biden want have, to have a debate. Why so would they just either won't. of them want to <laughs> yeah. do that? Both their people are going to get together like so and be like, daughtering. Why, why, why? I don't want to be on stage. Do you? No. no I don't, well, we don't no, want anyone to be on stage. No. Okay, fine. Okay, shake yeah. hands. Fuck no, it. No, fuck it. But let's be completely clear here, too, that about, you know, when it comes to class, which is always sort of my axis of thinking about things, it's like, you know, the wealthy people don't really care if Biden or Trump wins when you get down to it. They, right. this, that's why Bloomberg was acceptable to them is that they what they want is to crush the progressives, that their goal is bigger against the left than the right because it's about taxes it's about money you know right. so this yeah. is this is the distressing part is if we don't have a debate uh we've got trump tweeting 24 7 we've got the media which is definitely not 
as left leaning as people think. Um, <laughs> <At all. laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I get anxiety and stay up nights thinking about this stuff. It's I just know. too much for me. Well, Lori, we're running out of time here, but, um, it feels like we're just oh, getting sad. started. I know. I know. Do you want to so, come back? So please do I come do. back. Okay. Please come I back. I come back and tell people how a third party can actually work because I think that I have a plan. You know, okay. I have an idea. Oh. Yeah. Let's, let's just preview that and then we'll just come back. Not this year for anybody listening. Not this right. Year. Not just this year. Don't no. do it this year. You no. know, I, I, I'm glad you, you came on and you kind of did remind us of some of the things because we get caught up in we are very much passionate about harm reduction yeah. and we yes. are a little traumatized yeah. for 2016. So it's it's easy for us to get sort of caught up and then like we got to get on board with whoever it is. Let's do it. But like you're right. we, we there, There's time for that. And there's time to try to push the party where it needs to go and try to yeah. raise the things we care about. And Progressives have to learn how to play three-dimensional chess here. Progressives yeah. have been very naive and dewy-eyed about like, well, all we have to do is get enough votes. That's not how it works. And mm. that's not how politics in general works. So like, we have to get more strategic. And I was begging people. I was begging progressives all through the primary. Please think strategically. Please stop calling Elizabeth Warren a snake. Please right. stop, you know, uh, like, just stop, stop all that of it. That still stop. breaks my heart. I you just know? wanted her so badly. It, people but. are so naive. And, and this is where it's like, you know, we need to focus on, you know, this idea of unity is garbage. It's never happening. We need to focus on coalition building. Yeah. Like, yep. unity yes. is a yep. false idea. That yes. is the because big problem with is, the yes. Bernie people. Yes. They never understood that or embraced it or wanted it. And we know because we were Bernie caucus captains and big supporters in 2016. Yeah. And the Until people... We yeah, the people that we tried to explain coalition building said, no, F that. We don't want coalitions. I'm, we I'm just gonna, want Bernie and I don't I'm care I'm going to have a fart in. This is why I get beat up from all sides. You know, my know. My, my inbox is a horror show. I know. <laughs> I can only imagine. Your actual, like, public Facebook page is a horror show. I go on there and I'm like, who is this man saying this to her on I this know. completely innocuous thing that you said? And I just want to, like rip his fucking eyes out but i know I, and, and, yeah, people, I and know. people are like well you know walk down your privacy settings and oh i'm like God. it's cute that you have an illusion of privacy on the internet right. but i had an online stalker <laughs> for 10 years and it got around everything so you know it's 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 not it's it's this is why i'm shifting to like putting my energy more into writing yeah uh so i don't have to argue about it you know you can you can say whatever you want in my in my uh in the comment Log section comments or and I'll ignore it and right. I don't have to feel distressed about it you know which by the way everybody should go to the medium and look up Lori with no e at the end Lori links Murphy um and your incredible piece uh this morning or yesterday I don't remember about the economy and the coronavirus um and we're looking for more pieces from you on that they will be coming I got so yeah. much to say I know and you're gonna come <laughs> back on this podcast and talk to us I am so excited to. Okay. This was a blast. Yeah, it was great. great. Well, thank right. you so much, Lori. Really appreciate your time and your insights. So um, uh, we will have links to all her stuff in the show notes. Um, that's going to be it for us this week. We will be back next week. Uh, Rachel may have another one of her uh, quarantine sessions mm -hmm. uh, about uh, off-the-beaten-path topics. Um, I have been Travis. I'm Rachel. Stay active, stay tuned, stay involved. We will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.